ladies. I think it's 9.30. It is. It's 9.30. I don't know if when you were walking up from the parking lot and it rained on you, I thought, what is this rain stuff? You know, now we're just used to snow or sun. Those are our two choices, so rain is kind of weird. Anyway, okay, Matthew 18 this morning. Woohoo! Matthew 18, um, and it begins with a... Uh, a conversation about pecking orders. And, you know, uh, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> so I have my photo of chicken here for us. Um, you know, pecking orders, this is a very human question to ask. And not just human, you know, siblings have pecking orders. You probably know in your own family of birth where you stood in the pecking order. And maybe things got mixed up a little in different stages of life, but you know where you stand. Um, offices, schoolyards, churches have pecking orders. And it's not just humans, obviously, who like pecking orders and who operate. Um, dogs have pecking orders, right? That whole eye contact thing and who drops their eyes. We all, you know, think of everybody does that, the eye contact thing. And, um, you drop your eyes first if you are not the top, right? Um, chickens have pecking orders. My, my mom and my sister are both have chickens in their backyard, and there's always one just being just brutalized by the other chickens, and you feel so bad, but anyway. So this is, this is the only way to escape a pecking order, I've decided, is to be a plant, or a rock, or a microscopic life form, but then you're at the bottom of the pecking order, but they just eat you, you don't even know. So, um, so everyone else has to find their place in the hierarchy, and I am reminded of this, um, I have been working part-time for this career coach for a few years now, and every month or so she runs this workshop. So we were at Mercer Island, their community and event center, very nice event center. I was there to help her set up. We're trucking all this stuff from her car, and I noticed the parking lot is full of Porsches, right? Oh, gosh, there's a lot of Porsches here today. And um, big guys getting out and, you know, parking their Porsches and getting out. And anyway, so there we are with all this stuff. Guy opens the door, goes on in, you know, doesn't even look to see, like, here are these ladies with all this stuff. And not because we're ladies, but because we are burdened. Could you hold the door? Right? No, it doesn't matter. Porsche guy goes in. They're all milling around the desk, and, you know, Elizabeth, my boss, she's like, you know, can you unlock the room for us? And so a lady goes, okay, well, come unlock the room. So I follow the lady who's going to unlock the room. She unlocks the room, right? Come in with all the stuff. Boom! All the Porsche guys are in there, like, sitting down. and. Washington, like go down to Lake Washington, 
and open the fish's mouth, and there will be a check. And just put it in the mail. Thank you, Jesus. Um, so, no, I, sadly, I think nowadays if you open a fish's mouth, he'd be like choking on plastic. Have you heard all those articles? These poor fishes are all dying of plastic. Not of money. So, anyways, okay. So, it was a, so that led naturally to a, oh, okay, here on earth, we pay our temple tax, we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but in heaven, Lord, in heaven, Lord, what is the picking order going to be? So, let's look at At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, Jesus, what will the pecking order in heaven be? Who will be on top? And they expect him to say, you know, I mean, he does talk a little pecking order at other points, but, you know, we, is it going to be whoever is the best behaved? Who's the best behaved disciple? It'd be hard to think, like, hmm, which disciple is the best behaved? <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, John seemed to think he was the best behaved. He's always like, the, the love of the disciple who Jesus loved. But he didn't say for his behavior, so we don't know. Um, is it those who did the most for the poor, right? Which ruled out Judas, because Judas is always like, you know. Um, is it those who prayed the most, right? Is it the people who were martyred, right? What more can you do for the Lord than give up your life for him, right? Are they going to be on top? Um, is it the people who ran the biggest churches? You know, is it Joel Osteen? Who's it going to be? Um, is it those who did, contrarily, the most thankless grunt work? and didn't get noticed. Is it them, Jesus? Tell us, tell us, right? And Jesus called the child over and says, for starters, you don't even have to worry about making it to heaven if you aren't like this little child. Do you ever read some things Jesus says and does and just kind of wonder about him? <laughs> um, you know, I wonder, like, I was thinking recently about when Jesus says, do not worry, right? Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink. And I think, well, I know people, including my own son this year, suffering from anxiety and depression. And Scott, good heavens, I've been married to that guy for almost 25 years. He's, he suffers from anxiety and depression, right? And all I can say is, Jesus, they don't seem to be able to help it, right? If you don't suffer from anxiety and depression, choice can come into it. But, you know, sometimes I look at my son and he can't even say what it is. this free-floating thing, right? It's just a thing. And the day could be going well on paper, but there's that thing. And I just think, well, Jesus, what are they supposed to do? It seems to take professional therapy and or drugs to help this situation, right? And then there's this theme. And it makes you wonder, Jesus, do you ever actually spend much time with children? <laughs> I mean, I do appreciate, I do appreciate that he did not call a teenager over. <laughs> he did not say, unless you become like this teenager, rebellious, troubled, rude, undependable, dangerous behind the wheel, sullen, and sometimes dishonest, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> then I would have been like, Jesus, I don't know what you're talking about. Or I would have thought, oh, I'm in, right? Um, but I feel like, aren't children bad enough? Aren't they bad enough? I, uh, we were dog-sitting for some friends who went to Hawaii, and they brought their little almost two-year-old, and they came back, and I said, how was it? And she said, 
it wasn't the same. <laughs> and I said, no, it's not the same, is it? I said, there's Jackson, who was home for a mental health day, anxiety and depression, right? I let him have the mental, there he was, sitting there. And I said, when he was about that age, he single-handedly ruined a trip to Hawaii yeah. with crying, and we have pictures of him, and every picture's like, and I thought, I remember that trip, because that's exactly how I felt, because I was stuck with you the whole time. Um, so yeah, I think, aren't kids bad enough? Um, I think of my own kids when they were younger, they could be cranky, they could be stubborn, they would throw fits, this is mostly Jackson. Um, power struggles, that was the older two, right? Too much energy, at least too much energy for an adult who has slightly less energy. Um, and only their cuteness kind of saved them from certain <laughs> annihilation, right, at times. But Jesus doesn't say, unless you become cute, right? which, would, which is good news, I guess, right? I'm like, ee, we so what does he mean, become like children? A couple things, right? And this is the one they always talk about. First they talk about humility. Okay, humility. And humility is often thought of uh, thinking lowly of yourself, right? You take, and think of the other Bible story, you take the crummy seat so that the host will come and say, no, sit higher, sit higher, right? Or you don't take the Porsche Club of America seat and then somebody says, no, you're the dented Honda, you go down there, right? So, um, but thinking poorly of yourself does not automatically mean you are a humble person is the thing, right? Human beings, we are uh, capable of amazing mental gymnastics. And we can twist just about any thought or feeling into a sin. It's like one of our gifts, right? So we can twist thinking lowly of ourselves into being proud of ourselves. Look how humble I am. Look how lowly I think of myself. Look at all the thankless grunt work I do, right? We can turn that into a source of pride. Um, look at 1 Corinthians, well, you don't have to look at it. 1 Corinthians 13.3, Paul, this is the famous love sermon Paul gives. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Right? Paul knows, and God knows, that it is possible to give out of pride, not generosity. Right? It is possible even to lay down your life for personal glory and not out of sacrifice. So this is what we are able to do. We are able to turn even thinking lowly ourselves into thinking highly of ourselves. So, okay. Because every time we try to put others first, I don't know if you notice this, with me at least, self-intrudes, right? Self-interest intrudes. And this is why God doesn't say love others more than yourself, right? He, he says, no, just forget about that, right? No chance of that happening. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And we have found that a tall enough order, right? Because if we could begin to interest ourselves even a fraction of the amount um, that we are interested in, uh, interest ourselves in others, even a fraction of the amount that we are interested in ourselves, um, what a wonderful world it would be, right? What a wonderful world. If you, I wonder if God gave us, a, do you guys get that thing for the power company and it says how you're doing so crummy compared to your efficient neighbors? I was like, I think they can't even live in that house. We set our thermostat for 68, right? We take short showers on the roof. So anyways, but if God gave us a pie chart at the end of every day and said, Here, here's how you spend your thought life today. Oh my gosh, I know, nobody wants to see that, right? You're not doing as well as your most 
selfless neighbors, right? We know that. We know that Jesus, for him to say, love your neighbor as yourself, is already out of reach for us, for most of us, right? Okay. Um, so C.S. Lewis, of course, famously says, humility isn't thinking of others as better than yourself, but not thinking of yourself at all. Good word, C.S. Lewis, but is this what kids do? I don't think so, right? In my experience, kids are barely aware that other people have lives and feelings and motivations, right? We all remember that moment when you're a kid and you're in the grocery store and you see your teacher outside of the classroom and it never occurred to you that this person actually was alive and had a life outside of when you see them, right? They only exist when they sort of interact with you. And I feel like it takes a while for kids to grow out of that. I mean, nod your head if you've got kids. It takes a while for you to, re and we have to, as adults, remind them. The other person has feelings too. I have feelings that you have been troubling up, right? Other people have feelings and motivations too, and lives as well. It's not about you, right? So yeah, so childlike humility, I think, okay, I don't, it's not, thinking lowly of yourself and groveling in this case, it's not not thinking of yourself, because kids just naturally, that's all they do. So I said, I think it's something else, right? Childlike humility, when Jesus is referring to it, is relational. Thinking always of yourself in relation to your parent. Um, so realizing where everything comes from when you were a little kid, right? It's relational humility. If you want food, it comes from your parent, right? If you want permission to do something, you have to look to your parent, right? They're the ones who seem to have all the power. They give the permission. If you want love, you come to your parent first, right? And things get broken when parents don't give love, but that's where a child naturally goes first, is to the parent, I, I want love. If you have your heart set on something, you really, really, really want something, right? You tell your parent, because they have the power to give it to you. Um, if you need comfort, you go to your parent. If you want to tell somebody about your day, you tell your parent. And you know, you all know if you've had kids, this age does not last very long, right? Um, if you want someone to teach you or tell you a story, you go to your parent. And as young children, we may rebel against this system sometimes, right? We may resent that no, we can't have the cookies before dinner time, right? And we may throw a fit and be angry, but we show our anger to our parent, right? We show our anger. Have you ever had your kid throwing a fit at you, and then you like you leave the room, and they're just left with strangers? They button it up really fast, right? It's like, oh, excuse me, this doesn't apply to any of you. And then they run off and chase you around and continue the fit, right? They unhit the pause button. So, so clearly, all all of the emotions we feel, good and bad, are in relation to the parent. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at. Because as we get older, right, we start to look elsewhere. We go elsewhere with those things. Um, we look to teachers, we look to peers, and what a disaster that can be, right? Um, we look to peers, but they don't know anything. Um, we look to our jobs, right? We look to significant others. We look to food, sex, or money. We bring everything to these other places, right? And um, we learn, oh, I can satisfy that want or that need by going to this other source. I don't gotta go to my parents. I mean, a few of us are picking up the phone 
when we've got a little need and calling our parents, even if our parents are there to receive, right? Um, and so what Jesus is saying, I think, is that to enter the kingdom of heaven, we turn and we let God restore this relationship of recognition, right, and dependence. This idea of, Lord, oh, you reminded me. Everything I have ultimately comes from you. I've been looking in other places. I've been seeking other sources and forgotten who the source is, right? I've forgotten the relationship, where I'm supposed to come first with all these things, all these wants and desires. So Jesus is saying, you know, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who's most aware of where everything of value comes from, right? Provision, love, comfort, expressing our needs and wants and fears, and knowing our father wants to hear these things, right? A child comes because they expect you're kind of concerned with it, and you are, right? Up to a point, you are up to a point. Um, so turning to the father first and not last, or as just another base to cover, like, oh, the sex, food, money, peers, significant other, uh, you know, all that didn't do it for me today, so Jesus, you know, if you could do anything about it, right? No. Jesus, can you do anything about it before, I, you know, I can't help it. I, I look for comfort anywhere I can find, but I'm going to ask you first. Um, even when he, the answer he gives is not the one we like, right? Like young children, we cannot like the answer, and we can come to him with our anger and our disappointment, but we come to him with it, right? We tell him, I don't like your answer. I don't like what's happening right now. And that's okay. That's what kids do. If they are mad at you, they come and they act mad at you, right? God is saying, bring me yourself. Bring me your, your needs and desires. Bring me your emotions. Bring them to me. I'm your father. Become like a child. Have the humility a young child has and recognize who has the power and who has the desire to love you. Okay, Okay. I spent a long time on that. Let's move on. Okay, verse 5 through 9. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the man by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Okay. This is actually a clearer passage, I think, than the child one. And the bottom line, sin is serious. That's the bottom line, right? Sin is serious. Sin is life and death. Sin is not just the action that causes separation from the holy God in that moment. Sin is also directional, right? Sin is directional. And if we saw the destination where sin takes us, we would not want to end up there. Have you guys ever seen those billboards they have for meth addiction? And they put up some poor soul there who's like missing a bunch of teeth and looks just terrible and says, this is what happens if you start doing meth, right? Now nobody looks at that billboard and says, yeah, that's where I want to end up, right? Nobody does that, but that isn't how it works. Right? That's not how it works. It's, it's, um, sin is incremental, right? 
because it's directional. Sin is incremental. One moment causes that separation, but sin repeated, and we all have experience with sin repeated, sin repeated can become a habit, and habit ingrained can become bondage, right? Nobody says, oh, I just want to try and lift my because I want to lose all my teeth that look like that. Nobody says that, right? But they think, oh my gosh, life is bad. I just want to have a little fun and feel a little better. And, you know, sin is incremental. Sin is directional. And that is why Jesus is so extreme in his language here, right? Cut off your head. Gouge out your eyes. Take early steps. Don't start down that road because you will find yourself unable to make your way back. When, you're, when your teeth are gone and you're fully addicted, you will not know how to find your way back, right? And this is good kind of life advice. And we actually apply it in other places. We may not be aware of it. We may think, oh, cutting off our hands, gouging out our eyes. So extreme, Jesus, right? But we do it in other places. Um, think about, uh, sometimes they'll give diet advice. They'll say, don't even have junk food in the house, right? Because then when the urge hits, it's like, okay, to satisfy the urge, I gotta get in the car, I gotta drive to the store, I gotta blah, blah, blah. But if you get, don't even have it in the house. What is that but a version of cutting off your hand, right? You're saying, I'm not even going to have that possibility in the house without a great big pain in the butt for me to go satisfy, right? Um, think about um, some of you, there's some sort of app if you're addicted to your phone, and it like tells you, you've been on your phone for this amount of time. And, and no, oh, right? What is that but trying to get an app help you gouge out your eyes, right? Um, I got this little, I've been playing Words with Friends. I got this little thing, I think they meant it to be like, yay, and I saw the horror. It said, congratulations on your nine year Words with Friends anniversary. And I thought, I have given nine years of my life to this dumb game on my phone. And it was horrifying, did I stop? No, because it became a habit, it became ingrained, and now I'm in bondage to words with friends. But, um, but this is what he's talking about. Think about if you have money spending problems. Oftentimes people say, cut up your credit cards, right? Make an envelope of cash, and when you spend all that cash, that's it, honey. You gotta look for something else to do, because money's out till the next month, right? What is that but cutting off your hand and gouging out your eye? It's the same thing. Jesus is saying the same thing. Take early steps. Take early steps because it's a dangerous road and you cannot get back on your own. Okay, great. Um, so my son, you know, anxious, depressed son, he's uh, looking, he's thinking about colleges and he and his friend both got into this one college and the friend said, do you want to be roommates? And Jackson says, mm -hmm. because this friend is going through kind of a wild child stage. And Jackson said, I think if I room with him, I'll get in lots of trouble. And I said, then maybe wait till his junior year to room. Scott did college ministry. By their junior year, they're all kind of recovering from their incredible stupidity of their freshman and sophomore year, right? So I said, maybe by his junior year, you could room with him. But that is an example of cutting it off early, right? You can still be friends, but if you know this one step will lead to further disasters, cut it off early, right? Just say, no, why don't we be in the same dorm? Yeah? Okay. So let's go on, verses 10 to 14. 10 to 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. He's still on about the little kids. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep 
and one of them has gone astray, doesn't he leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Okay, yes. Um, <clears throat> this is good news for us sinners, right? After we go astray, after Jesus gives us dire warning about sin and how serious it is, and we do it anyhow, right? Um, after we go astray, despite the seriousness of sin, despite the fact that he warned us, right, our Father pursues us. And there's this little verse upon which many industries have built, been built, right? There are angels who watch and advocate for us, it seems. This is just one little verse, and... Um, you know, guardian angels, la, 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 la. And then you look at some people's lives and it's like, what were their guardian angels doing, right? If they're a guardian angel. But um, anyways, so I'm not even going to spend time on that. As Scott said on Sunday, you know, it's like one verse in the Bible. Let's talk about the, the main point. Okay. So the main point. So hopefully there's somebody in heaven who adds prayers to ours. That's a good thing. And I'll take it. But the more important thing is that our Father pursues us. Um, I remember the first time I had, after Lucy was born, and I now had three, the first time I felt ready to venture out to the park with them, right? So I've got the double stroller, I've got the big Bjorn, I've got blah, blah, blah. So anyways, Holly and Jackson go run off and play, and I've got Lucy in the stroller, kind of in her car seat, dealy thing, right? And then finally it was time to leave. I am by myself, this was not a play date, got the word, I'm by myself, right? I'm like, oh yeah! And instant obedience, no, right? Different directions. I try to load Lucy in the car. I'm like, do I abandon the baby to go get the toddler? Do I, do I, do I, do I take the baby and chase down all the stupid kids? And so I finally grounded the bus somehow, probably abandoning each one of them in turn. And um, so we got to the point I said, we will never go to the park again unless you can obey me. And when I tell you to come, you have to come, or we can never go to the So, But that feeling of, right, you've got to run after the one that's running off, and so, well, Lucy's kind of asleep, right? As long as there's not, like, a child predator just right here, she should be okay. So we understand, right? God pursues us. Um, he knows we wander into things that lead to death, and he comes after us. And I have been thinking about this passage recently because of the anxiety-depression thing, right? I have a group of people, and they are mostly kids, and I have been praying about them for months now, praying about them because they are in danger, right? Um, to a greater or lesser degree, they are in danger. Um, anxiety and depression and mental illness have a hold of them. And I have been mad at God, and letting him know about it, right, in true childlike manner, letting him know that I'm mad at him. Because why doesn't he do something already, right? Why doesn't he save them? Why doesn't he deliver them? What is this horrible condition? Do something, do something. They can't help themselves, Lord. Like little sheep that wandered off, they cannot help themselves. Um, and, you know, and I'm useless. I'm just another sheep, right? I'm just eating my grass thinking, wonder what happened to Charlie, right? Um, so the shepherd has got to do it. Where is the shepherd? And I think we all agree, I, God actually, I have written this whole talk, and 
this part was not in it. And then he kind of talked to me about it this week because I was praying for that group of people. Um, and I think we would all agree that sheep have limited perspective. Um, and so this passage was comforting to me this week because it reminded me that the shepherd does not go to the sheep and say, is everybody here? Right? He already knows. He knows who is here and who is missing. Right? He already knows. Um, whether they are lost to sin, whether they have been kidnapped by mental illness, he already knows they are missing. And he is pursuing them. So from a fellow sheep's perspective, I am not going to see or understand even a fraction of what is going on. A sheep cannot read your mind. Right? I cannot read the shepherd's mind. I have to trust him that he is pursuing and that he cares, right? From my sheep's perspective, it looks like people keep falling off of cliffs and he's like eating his lunch, right? From the sheep's perspective. So I have to trust, okay, this passage tells me God is a good shepherd. He knows when someone goes missing, he, he is going after them. And if I can't see or understand that, it is because I'm a fellow sheep and my perspective is limited. Okay. Similarly, we should care. We should care. Still as sheep, we should wonder where Charlie went, right? We should care if our brother is in danger of perishing. And we may not be able to do more than pray about mental illness, but we should do the praying, right? We should do the praying. Um, because the whole rest of the passage is going to be about how much God wants us to care about our brother who is going missing, right? How much we should care. Okay. If our brother is in danger because of sin, there's even more that we can do, luckily, right? In the case of mental illness, maybe you can just pray and pray and pray and pray and try to recommend a therapist, right? And then you leave it. But in the case of sin, especially if the sin has involved you, Jesus says there are more steps you can take to help. Okay. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Right? It's not just you going overboard being crazy. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Okay. Okay. Um, so, if leading someone away from faith in God and towards sin is so serious that we should have a millstone hung around our neck and be drowned, right? then that is how serious the work of reconciliation is, right? If you are a person who pulls millstones off of people and hauls them out when they're drowning, that is important work, right? To imitate the Father and participate in his work is to go about trying to repair what sin has broken. People, relationships, faith. So Jesus gives this one situation. He says, imagine this one situation. Someone has clearly wronged you. Um, we are not to sit and stew and then cut the person out of our lives or go talk and rage about it with somebody else, um, though that can be exactly what we want to do or what we do do at first. Um, 
remember before the snows hit? We didn't meet for almost all of February, right? The day the big snow was coming, um, Jackson, because of his anxiety, this is a long story, because of his anxiety, blah, 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 he had been missing swim practice, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so he comes downstairs and he says, well, I'm going to go hang out with Kira, the girlfriend, right? Um, be very nice to her. She visited our church for the first time this Sunday. He actually invited her. Um, I guess that would be an example of God being kind of at work. Okay. Anyway, I'm going to go hang out with Kira. I said, Kira, who lives in Blakemont, right? I said, well, it's supposed to snow. I said, maybe you shouldn't, maybe you should hang out, would she like to hang out around here, right? Since you guys have to go to practice. <laughs> you know, indeterminate answer. Bye-bye. Right, he's gone. So, along about after practice, I'm like, then I get a text. says, I'm stuck up at Kira's place because of the snow. The road is closed, and I don't think I can go home. Sweet baby Jesus. <laughs> so, I blew a gasket, right? I blew, but luckily he had texted me. If it, if this were verbal on the phone, I would have verbally blown me. But because I have to actually type things in, I'm like, I am not pleased! Right? They said I could spend the night. That's not the goal, right? I am not pleased! And then I had to take the phone because my blood pressure was like I was, I was going to blow up, literally. He took our best car, with the newest car with four-wheel drive. He went up. He was going to be stuck the entire week because it was going to be snowstorm after snowstorm in Lakemont. He didn't go to practice. He did not do what I advised him to do. I was so angry. So I took the phone into the living room where Scott was having his day off. <laughs> you must text him because I will murder him, right? So Scott had to say, blah, blah, blah. He ended up spending the night there. He had to undig the car and drive home. So he missed another practice, right? Because he missed his next day morning. So anger, 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 anger. So I had some precepts to Jesus' advice here. These are, these are optional <laughs> precepts. Rage, right? Vent to others. Scott and Lucy said later, that was really scary. I said, none of it was aimed at you. You know, I just, I don't accept any guilt from that. None of that was aimed at you, right? Me raging around that was not aimed at you, right? But let it be a lesson to you. Um, okay, venting to others. And the building up and careful nurturing of resentment. You know, I was still angry the following week because I was talking to another mom whose son had done something almost equally stupid and enraging, but he doesn't have anxiety and depression. So she got to blow up at him, right? I felt like my hands are tied. He's got anxiety and depression. I said, ah, because that'll make it worse, right? So I was like, I can't even have the satisfaction of blowing up, right? So because she blew up at her son, and he got out of the car and said, I'm sorry, that was really stupid. I thought, I would like to hear that. I'm sorry, that was really stupid and disobedient, right? So anyways, optional precepts. Jesus somehow doesn't mention these. I think because he knows we're already going to do them, right? These are the precepts. He's like, okay, when you have come down from your high horse, Took me a couple of, you know the don't go to sleep angry? I was like, oh, the sun went 
went down on my anger, the sun came up on my anger, the sun went down again, and then it started to cool off. Right? I'm like, sorry, Jesus, I am really sorry. Um, okay, so once you've gone through the optional free step, right, then we have the Jesus endorses step. Right? One, seek the person out and talk over what happened. Because I was still enraged a little, I had to send Scott to advocate for <laughs> Explain to him why I was so angry, right? And Scott did get up. I made some bad choices out of him. It's like, okay, I'll take, and as a mom of teenagers, you take that, right? Like, you, you kind of halfway apologize to him, I'll take it, right? Okay, so if he says he was sorry, forgive him, right? Let it go. How many times? We're gonna find out. 70 times, seven times, right? Okay, which if the person who wronged you is a family member, that number is about right, right? It has happened before, it's going to happen again. Because anyone you are that close to and you spend that amount of time with, it is going to require that many times of forgiveness. On your part, on their part, on everybody's part, right? That's just what being family is, being close to another person is. is Jesus had to go for a big number because he knows if we're in any relationship that is worth having, it's going to require a big number of times of forgiveness, okay? Um, okay, let it go. Reconcile, your relationship is back in working order, a blessing to both of you, right? That is, yay, that's a good situation, okay? If step one does not work, you might need to involve other trusted people. And they have to be people that the other person would also consider trusted people. It can't be you and your posse, right? It has to be, if you bring in another party, it has to be someone they also um, have a relationship with, right? Um, a friend was telling me about, um, she had an old group of college friends, been friends for years and years and years and years, right? Because she's my age. Friends for years and years. One of the friends started cheating on her husband, right? So, and each individual friend was having conversations about this is not what you want to do with your life, what you want to do with your family, what you want to do with your relationships, right? This is not God's best for you. Um, they weren't getting anywhere. So they arranged a getaway of the group of friends, and the whole group got together, so that they could try step two, right? Let's try it if we group of trusted friends who've known each other for decades. Let's talk about this, right? That blew up as well. And so now the woman who has broken her relationship with her husband and with God has broken it with all of her oldest, closest friends. So sad, right? And sometimes it goes this way. Um, but the second, Jesus is saying, the second she shows signs of repentance and wanting reconciliation, what do you do? Boom, forgive and let it go, right? Forgive and let it go. You know, when she told me this story, we, we prayed afterwards, and I don't know this person, right? But I prayed, you know, let this alienated friend recognize God is pursuing her. Her friends are not having these conversations to be a pain in the butt. They're having them because they love her and they care what happens to her. They got together because they all spent money and flew all over the country because they love her and they care what happens to her. God is pursuing her. Open her eyes so that she can see this pursuit is love. It may feel irritating. It may feel like none of your business. The pursuit is love, right? So if she turns back, restore that relationship. Okay, one and two don't work. Involving the church. Um, the church might need to mediate. This does happen. It isn't pretty. 
it usually results in someone blowing up and leaving the church. You know, that's usually where it goes. Um, and so the church doesn't even have to bother treating someone like a Gentile or a tax collector. I don't tax collector, but here, take my $10,000. Um, the church doesn't have to bother because the person's like, forget it, you know, I'm out of here, I don't need this place. Um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about a man sleeping with his stepmother. You might remember this. And the situation has reached DEFCON 3, right? Because, and he writes to them, he's like, I cannot believe this is happening, and you're all just sitting around and letting it happen. This is not right, right? So he says, when you are assembled and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan and for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's uh, 545. Um, and amazing, like, oh my gosh, you know, he says, hand him over, hand him over, let him do what he wants, but he cannot do it in the shelter of the church, right? The church has to say, we love you, but this isn't right, right? And he, and he says, the point is, let him do what he wants so that he can be saved, right? So that he can hit rock bottom and come to his senses and be saved, right? Tough love. The church, and what Jesus is talking about here is the church, he brings in that binding and loosing talk again, remember? That he first brought up with Peter when he said, you are the rock. Um, he says, the church has the power and the responsibility to exclude those who refuse its discipline and authority. Um, like the Catholic Church would call this excommunication, right? They have the authority to refuse them. That is one of the keys to the kingdom that Jesus gave them in Matthew 16, and it gets repeated here. But the purpose of the exclusion, even, is not to mean or mean it. The purpose of the exclusion is to save the person, right? All of these methods are not working. They're not reaching the person. Try exclusion. Try seeing if that will help. Because after all, if someone is a Gentile or a tax collector, then they just become someone we are inviting, right? Right? If, if someone is outside the church, that just means they've joined that group of people that we are now inviting. Please do come here about the love of Jesus, right? Please do. Um, so sidebar, sidebar. Um, this verse is often taken out of context, right? If two or three of you agree. In the, it's in the context of church authority, right? So he's saying when the church is gathered and in prayer, God promises his presence and he acknowledges that he has given it authority. So this verse does not mean if we all gather in our small groups after the lecture and pray, Lord, give us Hawaiian vacation. It does not mean that God has to honor that, right? He's talking about church authority and church discipline, and one of the keys given to the church. Okay, so let's end with this parable of the unmerciful. Oh, forget it. Unmerciful service. I'm not even going to read it. Hopefully you read it, or you have heard it read. Um, so the unmerciful servant. And we are back to the seriousness of sin and the seriousness of forgiveness, right? Jesus ends in a totally different place. Sin is serious, sin is serious, sin is serious. Forgiveness and reconciliation are equally serious in the scale. Okay. So this unmerciful servant, right? He owes a sum so fantastic, I'm sure it doesn't feel real. It's like the national debt. You know, once you hit the trillion, it's like, it doesn't even exist. Because it's so huge, we can't get our mind around it, right? It can never be repaid, so I'm not going to bother trying. I'm just going to say, 
I'm bankrupt. I give up. Right? And I know I feel this way. I feel this way when I was raging at my son. I thought, I thought I had actually made some sanctification progress. But in fact, no, it was that my kids were behaving better for like a decade. And now when they start acting up again, I'm just the same old me. That was very discouraging. So I think, well, Jesus, you know, if Jesus, if you can't save me, I'm out of luck. Right? I, I cannot even begin to take care of this mess that is me. So please, you have got to do I don't have any other plan. Um, so what does this story tell us? The story tells us that God is the original 70 times 7 forgiver. Right? He takes pity on our helplessness. He hears our cries for mercy. And he forgives. That huge debt that's getting interest every day that is in the trillions. Right? gone, forgiven, right? not even a partial payment plan. You know those commercials where they're like, do you have student debt? And you're like 87 years old? Let's help you with that. <laughs> they're like, not even that. It's gone. It's taken care of, right? It never was. It's like it never was. Okay, how do we respond to this? Probably the first time we heard this news, we were over the moon, right? Are you kidding me? It's forgiven. It's gone. It's gone. Um, and then we get a little used to God's 70 times 7 nature, right? Um, we begin to take it for granted. We lean on it with entitlement. Well, I know I'll just have to ask God's forgiveness later, right? And we forget how costly every instance of forgiveness was. When the snow came and it iced over it, you remember that one day the girls slipped and they thought, they thought she slipped on the ice and banged her head and that's why she died, but it turned out she had a... Thank you. She turned out, anyways, the day she slipped and they didn't know why she died, Holly and the girls in her sorority were that family should sue. They were putting up ice on the campus. And I said, okay, I just want to say, they don't know why she died yet. And two, if she sues, you die. Guess who pays for that? We do, right? Let's not get lawsuit happy. It just goes to all of your tuition and fees, right? The cost does not disappear. The cost moves around. Right? This is, this is the thing that, that um, people don't always realize when it's like, hey, free college for everyone. It doesn't actually become free. It's just the payment goes around, right? So what happens is when God says, I forgive you, the cost doesn't poof. The cost was paid, right? Jesus has to lay down his life. It remains a costly thing, a costly forgiveness, right? God has to give everything in order to forgive us in order to make the sin go poof, but the price does not go poof, right? Jesus has to take care of it. It is costly. And so if we never lost sight of that cost and that grace, Jesus is saying you would never have trouble forgiving another person, right? If you never lost sight of what it costs God to forgive us. But we do, right? We do. 